eventually Bangladesh, I think, will have to uh, you know make uh, you know, be more forthcoming. I think because the economy is growing and Bangladesh will have more uh, leverage and lobbying power. I think with both countries because uh, both India and China will slowly realize that the economic potential of Bangladesh is quite significant. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about Pakistan's economy, um, issues uh, related to it. We've touched upon reforms in India. But one country that we've missed about uh, talking about on is Bangladesh. And of course, when Bangladesh was founded, it was uh, one of the poorest countries in South Asia, devastated by the war in 1971, which was really a brutal uh, act in terms of what happened uh, on the ground in Dhaka and beyond. And so to talk about what's go- what happened in Bangladesh since then and what has led Bangladesh to becoming an export powerhouse, we have with us uh, Sayyid Yusuf Sadat. He is a senior associate at the Center for Policy Dialogue in Bangladesh. He's an economist who has a deep understanding about economic policies and what sort of policies are needed to generate growth and has worked with several international organizations, including the UNDP. He's also, he's also co-author of the book titled Youth Employment in Bangladesh, Creating Opportunities, Reaping Dividends, uh, which is published by Palgrave Macmillan. So Yusuf, thank you so much for taking out the time today and joining us here on Pakistanomy. Thank you, Zara. It's a great pleasure to be here. I want, I want to touch upon and start off this discussion with this, uh, what happened in Bangladesh. So in, we look at 1971 and the post-independence years. Um, there was political instability, there was economic instability, but since then, Bangladesh really has become an export powerhouse and has become one of the fastest growing economies in South Asia. Predictions are that in the next few years, it will overtake India in terms of GDP per capita, even on the purchasing power parity metric, which has not happened. So share with us um, some of the keys to success for Bangladesh when it comes to this uh, amazing economic transformation. So basically, uh, as you know, as you correctly mentioned, like right after the war, Bangladesh was uh, completely shattered in terms of uh, its socioeconomic, uh, you know, indicators and infrastructure, and there was lots of lives and livelihoods. So it was a very difficult time, just like for any other country which has come right out of a war. But then a number of things have, you know, taken place that have really turn things around for Bangladesh. And it didn't happen very quickly. Like right immediately after the war also, we faced a lot of natural disasters and all those things. So it took us some time, but I feel that quite a few things have happened which have you know, moved the uh, you know, pivot in our favor. And one of the biggest uh, things that I would say, and if we do this as a kind of comparison, because this is Pakistan, so if I do this as a kind of comparison between uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh, like from the period of the war. So if you see, if you go back to almost like 1960s, back then, uh, the population growth rate of, uh, you know, uh, East Pakistan, which was like Bangladesh, was around 2.8%. And the overall population of East Pakistan was also larger during the war in 1971. And West Pakistan was growing at uh, 2.4%, which was slower in terms of population. And population of West Pakistan was also a bit lower, like six, six to 10 million lower. But then uh, after the war, population growth rate of Bangladesh fell drastically. And then it did recover a bit, but it never went back to the pre-war or the 1960s rates. So after the war, what has happened is that Pakistan, Bangladesh, both have tried to control their population. But in terms of uh, success, I would say Bangladesh has been more successful. Like if you uh, look at the growth rate in the latest years, like 2019, Bangladesh population was growing at 1%, whereas Pakistan's population was growing at 2%. And around, I think in 1980s, somewhere in the 80s, around 83 or 84, Pakistan overtook Bangladesh in terms of population. And because this is because it, within a decade of our independence, we had 
started all the, these programs to control population, to send girls to school, and all of these things that we've done, we have tried to slow down the growth of population. That was one of the biggest uh, decisions that we took in the early years. And that has paid off, I think, because in 2019, Bangladesh, officially Bangladesh's population was around 160, 170 million, whereas Pakistan's population was in excess of 200 million. So that, I think, has worked in our favor because resources, as you know, are limited. And, if, and Bangladesh is a very small country, like it's basically smaller than, you know, many American states like Alaska or California but it has almost half of the people of the United States in that kind of a small place, right? So controlling population, I think, was very important for Bangladesh. But, hello? Sorry to interrupt, but I always remind people that, you know, um, Pakistan, for example, uh, is smaller than the size of Texas and has over yeah. 200 million people. It's like two thirds of the population of the United States in, in, you know, in a space that is smaller than the state of Texas. Yeah, but even Texas is quite large for us. It is quite large. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Bangladesh is much way smaller than Texas. And also, and it's, even Bangladesh is quite in big in terms of population, maybe not 200 million still. 170 million is quite large. Nevertheless, I think that worked in our favor, controlling population. But even though uh, Pakistan overtook Bangladesh in terms of population in the 1980s, but Bangladesh still managed to have a larger uh, labor force and almost till mid 2000s. So even though Pakistan had more people, Bangladesh had a higher labor force participation. Bangladesh at a higher labor force participation rate. And so uh, for almost 20 years, we had less people, but more workers than Pakistan. So that really helped us also. And uh, the other issue was that our workers were also less paid, which is not really good for the workers. But in terms of competitiveness, the wages of Bangladeshi workers, if you, it's hard to compare wages internationally, but if you look at ILOs, like, you know, cross-monthly minimum wages for Bangladesh and Pakistan, you'll see that in Bangladesh, it's like around $263 per month, whereas in Pakistan, it's almost $481 per month. So there's quite a bit of a difference between the minimum wage of workers in Bangladesh and Pakistan. So this huge uh, labor force that we have in Bangladesh, which is a large pool of workers, who are willing to work at low wages. This also, I think, gave us a competitive edge. And it also worked in our favor. The other issue is that if you think about it, that where did these extra workers come from? Because Bangladesh had less people, but it had more workers. How come Pakistan had more people, it had less workers? So the problem is that in Pakistan, the labor force participation rate for women, for girls, was much lower than Bangladesh. Like even in the 1990s, female labor force participation in Pakistan was 4%, whereas in Bangladesh it was 7%. And in 2019, if you look at it, it's like 15% for Pakistan, 21% for Bangladesh. So on average, you know, Bangladesh has 10 to 15 million extra women working in the labor force compared to Pakistan. And also, uh, in women in like high and middle management and senior management positions also that's almost double of that of Pakistan. So this story, this will, you will see that this is a recurring theme as you uh, think about uh, Bangladesh and what has happened for Bangladesh. You'll see that the role of women will come back over and over again. So and from, from a, really quickly yeah. on the women's side before I lose that thread there, what yeah. were some of the things that the government did very early on that created that momentum for getting women in the labor force? Was there something specific that was done to make sure that that happened? Or was that just, you know, a natural tendency among Bangladeshi society to have women going into work and not, it not being as much of a taboo as it is in North India and Pakistan? Yeah, but there was a taboo. Obviously, there were taboos. And uh, in terms of uh, culture and, uh, you know, uh, social norms, South Asian countries are quite similar. 
So there were some problems, obviously, women in Bangladesh when they first started on their journey into the economy. They obviously did encounter lots of social problems, but the government of Bangladesh, they have taken a number of steps and also the non-government sector, I think, the non-state actors, they also played a big role there because, uh, you know, that Bangladesh is the, you know, uh, it's the birthplace of microcredit. And in 2006, when uh, Mohamed Yunus and Grameen Bank were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, by then they had, you know, given around on average of $100 loans to more than 7 million borrowers. And 95% of them were women. And so if you think about BRAC, which is the largest NGO in the world, it's also founded in Bangladesh, Sir Fazl Hassan Abid, sadly passed away recently. But BRAC has had a huge influence on Bangladeshi development. And like from the eight, 1980s to 1990s, BRAC uh, taught over 12 million women how to make you know, oral rehydration therapy like Orsaline just to treat diarrhea and you know, to treat dehydration. So th those things were important. And recently, as you know, everybody knows that women are working in the RMG sector of Bangladesh, in the ready-made garment sector, almost 3 million women are working there. And also what I mentioned earlier regarding population, around 1980s, Bangladesh started the female education stipend. So it's a female secondary education stipend where uh, girls are paid a nominal sum of money for just being in school after they finish primary school. So from grades six to 10, if girls are staying in school and if they have like 75% attendance and 45% score in their exams, and if they stay unmarried, then they will get a nominal amount of money from the government. And right before their secondary school exams, like when high school graduation exams, they'll also get some money for buying books and for exam fees. So that I think was a huge success. It was one of the most successful uh, safety net programs that Bangladesh has taken. And that helped really to increase, you know, education and empowerment of women, and also to slow down fertility rates, delay marriage, and all these, you know, benefits. It's not just education. It's a whole host of benefits that came from there. Oh, okay. So that's that's interesting. And I think the stipend one sort of makes me think about another question that, you know, comes up particularly in Pakistani discourse, and it is linked to economic growth and transformation as well, which is the role of corruption in society. And so when right. I look at international indexes, look at Pakistan, look at India, look at Bangladesh, like it is pretty evident that corruption continues to be a problem. In Pakistan's case, the debate has been that corruption is like one of the biggest things that is holding the country back. And there's a huge debate about it, but it seems like Bangladesh has a similar problem. So I was just curious to get your thoughts around, you know, when you have a stipend for women, one would argue that in a society where corruption is a problem, there would be leakages and this money would be captured by others who are actually not giving the money to women who are actually going to school. And so the issues come up. How does Bangladesh deal with this issue of corruption um, over the long horizon? So in specifically regarding the female education stipend, I am not sure how the government actually minimized leakages and those things. But in general, what you mentioned is correct, that we do have a problem of leakages and selection of beneficiaries when we go for uh, safety net programs, because most of these are targeted for a particular group of people and it's not universal. So sometimes we do have those problems, but in general, I think this program had something related to the school. And so it was harder for people who are not like, you cannot just come and say that I am, I want the stipend. You have to be a girl in a school and you have to be attending the classes. So those things, it was connected to that. So I think it was harder for people to just come up and say that, oh, I also want the stipend, or I am eligible for the stipend. Like in other cases, it's much easier, I think, in other safety net programs. And in general, I think in both Bangladesh, Pakistan, in many developing countries, corruption is a big issue. But uh, I, if you look at the uh, data, then you'll see that uh, recent 
indexes, like there's this worldwide governance indicators, which the World Bank is calculating. So they have a host of indicators from there. They make six indices. One of them is the control of corruption index. So that index is like from 2.5 to minus 2.5 and higher numbers mean that you are doing better in terms of controlling corruption. So in the most recent uh, data, you'll see that actually Pakistan is doing better, slightly better than Bangladesh in terms of controlling corruption. And uh, if you look at the other governance indicators, uh, out of the six, three of them, like control of corruption and uh, government effectiveness and uh, regulatory quality. The, in these three indices, Pakistan is doing slightly better than Bangladesh, whereas Bangladesh is doing a slightly better than Pakistan in terms of voice and accountability, political stability, and rule of law. But the issue is that in most of these cases, the differences are very small. The only exception is if you look at the political stability and uh, you know, absence of violence and terrorism index. In that index, you'll see that the difference between Bangladesh and Pakistan is quite substantial. And also this is, I think, instead of corruption being the biggest problem for Pakistan, I would rather say that maybe terrorism and political stability is a bigger problem for Pakistan. Like if you look at the data for terrorist incidents and you know, uh, deaths and gene injuries from terrorism, then from 1977 to 2018, between 41 years in between these two countries in Bangladesh and Pakistan, there were 1,682 terrorist attacks in Bangladesh. So that's like roughly 41 terrorist incidents uh, every year. And in Pakistan, during that same time, there were 14,837 terrorist incidents. So that's like 361 terrorist incidents every year. It's like almost, almost one, one a day. One a day. So it's a huge difference. And this has led a lot to a lot of loss of lives also. People have been injured. People have died from terrorist attacks. And these numbers are substantially higher for Pakistan significantly higher. So I think this, I think instead of corruption, I think it's the fact that political stability and uh, control of terrorism, that is where uh, there was a big difference between the countries. I think political stability is for sure very important, right? Even in the, the peak years of terrorism in Pakistan, which was all the way, I would say, up to 2015, 16, 17. And then you sort of see in that era a decline, which has led to an improved situation. Political instability continues, right? We have an opposition movement in Pakistan about to hold a big rally in Lahore, despite an ongoing pandemic and all sorts of other issues in the system. But Bangladesh, when I look at sort of a cursory look at history, there were issues in terms of political stability as well. Oh, there were coups, yeah. there were issues. So I was just curious to get your thoughts about like, how, what were some of the keys to success in that area where you know, you had the emergence of a stable political order, albeit some will argue that it is a one-party state and there are issues with that, but let, it is a stable order. And so I was just curious to get your thoughts around how that journey uh, was made successful in the Bangladeshi case. Yeah, so in the case of Bangladesh, like I was saying that obviously the control of population, the cheap and abundant labor that we had, and apart from that, we also had an advantage uh, over Pakistan in terms of trade, international trade, because you mentioned about export powerhouse. So in terms of trade, uh, I think uh, when I looked at the data and I was curious that in terms of revealed comparative advantage, so it's just an index which shows uh, competitiveness in terms of producing and exporting goods. So in terms of revealed comparative advantage, Pakistan has a uh, higher competitive advantage in more goods than Bangladesh. So Pakistan is more competitive in a higher number of goods. Like if you look at uh, 259 products, which Antet is uh, listing, then Pakistan has a higher competitive advantage than Bangladesh in 185 products. Whereas Bangladesh has a higher revealed competitive advantage in only 74 products. But if you add these up, then you'll see that Bangladesh's sum of revealed competitive advantages in those smaller number of products is much greater than Pakistan's advantage in the larger number of products. 
So Bangladesh is better at making you know, fewer stuff better than Pakistan. But in those things, Bangladesh is doing significantly better than Pakistan. And Pakistan, even though it can, has a more diverse economy, it is not being able to compete with Bangladesh in that sense. So I think uh, in terms of specialization based on comparative advantage, we, in Bangladesh, we have put all our eggs in one basket almost. So we have specialized in the places where we, are, uh, we have an advantage. And also with that, what has helped us is that, as you know, Bangladesh in 1975 was uh, recognized as a least developed country by the United Nations Committee for Development Policy. And the, at first they were not very willing to take us in, but then we did try and explain that we meet all the criteria, like for example, uh, per capita income and share of manufacturing and literacy rate and all those things. So, but they were hesitant because it's such a large country in terms of population, but still we got in. And once we did get into the least developed country uh, group in 1975, over th these few decades, Bangladesh has benefited from a large number of uh, international support measures for these developed countries. And Bangladesh, among all the 48 or 47 LDCs, Bangladesh has the highest utilization rate of preferential trading agreements among all the LDCs. So no other least developed country has been able to take advantage of uh, international support measures better than Bangladesh. And these support measures are like duty-free, quota-free access to uh, some you know, important markets such as European Union. Then we also get uh, you know, benefits under WTO's uh, trade-related intellectual property rights. So TRIPS agreement, we have a general waiver and also the pharmaceuticals waiver, which helps the pharmaceuticals industry to produce any goods without uh, worrying about intellectual property rights. So these things have, I think, really helped us and it has really uh, boosted our exports. What are some areas where now you look at, you know, obviously Bangladesh ready-made garments is a big, plays a big role. Recently, there were stories about Samsung beginning to assemble its phones in Bangladesh. There's been a lot of talk about promoting technology and IT sectors within the country. What are some sectors that you see now that Bangladesh has become a powerhouse, has started attracting more and more for, uh, foreign direct investment. Um, what are some future areas where you see Bangladesh being able to not keep its eggs in one basket, but actually look at other baskets as well, where it can actually outperform uh, the rest of the world as well? So obviously, uh, like pharmaceuticals has a huge uh, potential for Bangladesh. If we could uh, enjoy the pharmaceuticals benefit waiver, of the WTO trade-related intellectual property rights agreement till 2033, which is the highest point that you can go, then I think we could significantly benefit in terms of pharmaceuticals exports and we could produce uh, medicines at very cheap prices for on many countries of the world where people uh, need all these medicines. And even during this pandemic at this time, it, you know, if, Bangladesh, if you, like our prime minister recently uh, made a proposal to share the, you know, technology of COVID vaccines and to share these things, because once you share it with us, we can produce it much cheaper than any other Western country. And also you remember Bangladesh, I think, uh, was exporting remdesivir when it started uh, becoming used for COVID-19 treatment. So pharmaceuticals, I think, is one where we can look into apart from uh, ready-made garments. The other one, I think uh, if we can try and uh, get over some of the uh, obstacles in the you know, general agreement on trade and services under WTO. So over there, we have certain obstacles which prevent us to, from exporting services. And also there's a problem of regarding uh, recognition of uh, academic degrees like doctors in Bangladesh are not directly recognized in America. So these kinds of issues are there. So if we can, you know, somehow overcome some of these obstacles, then we can export more of uh, skilled labor. Like a lot of the, the vast majority of the developed world, they are now undergoing aging population. 
and their populations are getting older. And in countries like Japan, they also don't have enough nurses, they don't have enough uh, care workers. And for countries like Bangladesh, if Japan would recognize our care nurses and our care workers, then we could send them to Japan. So these kinds of things can be there, I think, in the future. I think that's interesting because I was going to ask like what the impact of COVID-19 has been on sort of the expatriate labor force of Bangladesh, which is concentrated in sort of the Gulf uh, monarchies. And, you know, obviously there have been shutdowns, there are labor market reforms going on over there. And people have come back, not only in Bangladesh, they've come back to India, they've come back to Pakistan. And there's been some degree of pain felt by those households where an average household would get 10, 15, maybe 25% of their income from that remittance flow coming in. And these people have come back home. So what has been the impact of that uh, pandemic, particularly focusing on this uh, influx of people coming back from the Gulf that, that export labor, not having jobs? Yeah, so obviously well, uh, hundreds of people have returned home from various countries, from the Middle East, from uh, Italy. In fact, the COVID-19 first came to Bangladesh from Italy when some migrant workers had to come back because it was getting really difficult over there. So obviously it's going to be very difficult. Many of these workers have returned, but they haven't been able to uh, integrate themselves into the economy as of yet because some of them used to work in sectors like they used to work in restaurants in Italy. But now restaurants in Bangladesh are also not doing well. So they are finding it difficult to uh, get jobs, obviously. And ultimately, the Bangladesh economy is not large enough to accommodate all the Bangladeshi people in the world. Okay. The labor market of Bangladesh, the workers, they have to you know, explore opportunities abroad. And they have, we have to send our workers abroad, whether it's skilled labor or unskilled labor. The Bangladesh economy cannot absorb all the Bangladeshis living in all parts of the world. So eventually these people will try to go back to the countries from where they came from. But it also depends on the way in which we can control COVID-19 and in which the other countries can also control COVID-19. So if we can keep the virus at bay in Bangladesh and also the host countries, if they can also control the virus, then I think our workers can go back more safely. Can you shed some light also on the domestic front in terms of, you know, uh, COVID-19, there were lockdowns, obviously, initially there were closures of factories and exports declined sharply. We saw some protests from garment workers around Eid, whether they were coming back to work or not. But then very quickly after that, Bangladesh started exporting PPE and its sort of export industry slowly coming back to where it was pre-pandemic. And the government rolled out several stimulus measures, including talking about food grants and cash grants, et cetera. So help the listener understand what the slew of COVID-19 pandemic response was from the government in terms of both the stimulus as well as the public health safety measures that were taken to make sure that the economy is running and coming back online while lives are also being saved in, in the best possible manner. So, uh, you know, COVID-19, uh, in late March, we started showing, we started seeing cases of COVID-19 in Bangladesh. And as of November, you know, we have more than like 400,000 cases in Bangladesh and more than 6,000 people had died. So obviously it's quite a, a challenge for us in terms of control controlling the virus in terms of uh, making sure everybody's getting the treatment that they need and in terms of getting the hospitalization facilities. Because in, in general, Bangladesh, the healthcare sector of Bangladesh is not the strongest. And even in normal, ordinary circumstances, people sometimes find it difficult, especially in rural and remote areas, they'll find it very difficult to get treatment. So it's obviously very challenging for us. and. The economy has significantly slowed down and like many international organizations have come up with forecasts which are much lower than what we have seen in the last decade for Bangladesh. And our workers have also lost jobs. Like many people have lost jobs and people have lost, they've not lost jobs, but they've lost their some significant portions of their incomes. So it has been quite challenging. 
but the government has rolled out a number of uh, stimulus packages and also it has offered lots of uh, liquidity support. Most of the stimulus is in fact in the form of liquidity. So there are lots of low interest loans for various groups of uh, industries, large industries, small and medium industries, and also for uh, low income professionals. So it's mostly in terms of loans because you know that uh, most of the South Asian countries are quite squeezed out in terms of fiscal space. They don't have that kind of uh, leverage that they're going to roll out huge uh, fiscal stimulus packages like Germany or something like that. So it's quite difficult, but still the government is trying what, all that they can. And also uh, what's happening is that we are going back to work now. We are, uh, the economy is slowly, you know, going back to where it was, but it will still take more time, I think. And most, in most cases, most industries, most factories and offices, the ones which have opened, they have opened on limited scale. So it has not really, we're not completely back to where we were. And in terms of exports, it's not only about us controlling the virus. It's also about the countries with, who used to buy our products. They also have to be able to control the virus. They're, uh, incomes, their jobs have to go back to where they were. Otherwise, the demand for our exports will simply fall. And even if we can produce all these things, we won't be able to sell it to anyone. I think the, the interest rate in li uh, liquidity one is one that where I sort of, you know, disagree particularly with some of the policies in an India or a Bangladesh where Pakistan is definitely completely maxed out, right? It is on an IMF program about to re-enter it. It was paused needed additional flows from the IMF and the crisis hit. Bangladesh and India have excess foreign reserves. They have a better capacity, I would say, to at least roll out bigger stimulus measures uh, on the fiscal side. But one would then argue that if you're under lockdown and the economy is not fully back online, the stimulus doesn't have an effect, the intended effect in any case, because people are being asked to stay at home. So one would hope that as people start returning back more and more that there are additional measures taken when some sort of normalcy returns. But from your perspective, like given that this is going to be a long haul, even when the vaccine is out, it will take some time to get it through the population. What are some other risks that you see in the near term that Bangladesh should guard itself against and, and make sure that it addresses those issues, given that we're still in the middle of a pandemic? So obviously what the pandemic has shown us is that people in Bangladesh and people all over the world are really vulnerable. And the vulnerabilities of the poor have come out very strongly during the pandemic. I think all over the world, not just in Bangladesh. And so countries which don't still with this, there are many countries who still don't have a universal social protection program. So for those countries, I think, uh, the vulnerability of the poor is going to be a big problem. And whenever there's a shock like COVID-19, the poor people straight away go back into poverty and that's going to be very difficult for them to adjust and come back to where they were. And COVID-19 is just one disease. There will be more diseases. And you know, for countries like Bangladesh, they're very vulnerable to climate change and natural disasters and floods and cyclones. So every time something like this happens, uh, the poor people, the people who are the most uh, left behind, those are the people who will suffer the most. So I think that is a big risk. And in the long run, I think we need to design some kind of a universal social protection mechanism so that we can address these vulnerabilities and so that we can make sure that food security and access to healthcare and education, even things like water, hygiene, sanitation. Like in the middle of COVID-19, we had a super cyclone coming into Bangladesh. And that completely destroyed a huge areas in the coastal regions. And that led to a water, you know, water sanitation and hygiene crisis because a lot of the, you know, toilets and a lot of the sort of tube, tube well, deep tube wells where they used to collect water, those were destroyed. So how are they going to get water and how are they going to wash their hands to prevent COVID? So those things are a big problem. And there are other issues as well. A lot of other things are coming in in the future. Like for example, uh, if you think about it, uh, we also have to consider that our, you know, 
our country, our exports, they depend heavily on ready-made garments and on North American and you know, European markets. But ultimately, Bangladesh has already qualified for uh, graduation from these development country status. And most probably in the triennial review next year, they will be recommended for graduation. So once that takes place in 2024, our duty-free quota-free access to the European market will be gone. And then it will become much more difficult. It will be gone like after three years, like grace period, but still it will become much more difficult for us. We have to think in the long run as well. So, um, you know, on, on that note, like obviously COVID will also change or has al already changed what people wear, how they dress, fashion trends, et cetera. Fast fashion is no longer there. So obviously that is a risk on top of everything else, making sure that the factories that are there adjust rapidly to more people wearing sweatpants instead of pants, for example, right? At yeah. a very basic level. Um, and then obviously, as you were talking about the risks, I was thinking, you mentioned the cyclone, there's climate change and climate adaptation. And again, <clears throat> those types of cyclones um, and extreme weather events will become more and more common. So I fully agree with you that you need to have not only a policy that, you know, increases resiliency of your infrastructure and your economy in general, but also to make sure about how do you roll out disaster relief measures for the most vulnerable segments of society. And I think that's where all of South Asia, in my view, can collaborate and learn from each other because the risk is a shared risk. And if super cyclones are coming in Bangladesh, they're also going to hit parts of the Arabian Sea. They'll hit Karachi, they'll hit Mumbai, they'll hit other coastal areas at the same rate, um, if not more. So there's a lot of need to do that. There's a lot of need for collaboration on agriculture um, as well in terms of climate adaptation. So one would hope that, you know, these countries start talking with each other. And speaking of countries like, you know, obviously in Pakistan, <clears throat> the biggest economic partner has been China. And the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor has been a flagship part of the Belt and Road Initiative. But the Chinese have also tried to make investments within Bangladesh as well. And, you know, in, in certain sectors and obviously India is next door to you guys as well. And there are there's this competition between India and China growing at the same time. So from an economic perspective, how do you see Bangladesh navigating this tug of war between two large powers that are right next door to Bangladesh? And frankly, with which Bangladesh has a much better relationship, particularly with India than than Pakistan does. But how does that play out within the economic issues of Bangladesh itself? So basically when, you know, there's a tug of war between these kinds of large countries, what happens is that for small countries like Bangladesh, they get into a sort of uh, dilemma, which is quite difficult for them to get out of that. You know, what they say that when the elephants fight, it's only the grass that suffers. So that's what's going to happen, that if the countries, if India, China, and large countries get into some kind of a struggle, then smaller countries and like Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, Myanmar, these countries will tend to suffer. But generally, Bangladesh has maintained a foreign policy of, uh, you know, friendship for towards all and, you know, that kind of a thing. So we have a very good, uh, strong ties with both India and China. China is right now the biggest uh, trading partner for Bangladesh. And also China is one of the major investors for Bangladesh. And India, obviously, has been a long time uh, trading partner and we share a huge land border with India as well. So we have tried our best in, to uh, navigate with as much as we can with prudent diplomacy and dialogue and discussion. But obviously sometimes it gets very tricky and it gets very difficult. And sometimes uh, whatever is in our national interest is not probably what the countries, other countries are wanting. So it gets very difficult to balance those things out. But eventually Bangladesh, I think, will have to uh, you know, make, uh, be more forthcoming, I think, because the economy is growing and Bangladesh will have more uh, leverage and lobbying power, I think, with both countries because uh, both India and China will slowly realize that the potential of Bangladesh is quite significant. And it has already happened and most, uh, and both of these uh, nations are trying their best to offer, uh, you know, better trade deals and better investment opportunities.
India has invested also in quite heavily in Bangladesh in, in power in other sectors and China is also doing the same. And, but the issue is that in terms of Belt and Road, since you mentioned that China, Pakistan economic corridor, uh, we are also part of one of the corridors in Belt and Road Initiative. That's the Bangladesh, China, India, Myanmar, BCIM corridor. But the, uh, the BCIM corridor so far has seen the slowest progress in terms of all the six Belt and Road corridors. So, and that is mainly because India has gradually become more and more reluctant to uh, take part in the BCIM corridor. Because even like 10 years before, 10 or more years before Belt and Road Initiative was launched by uh, President Xi Jinping, uh, we in, at the Center for Policy Dialogue, our chairman, he also, Professor Sohan, he wrote a book on the re reigniting the you know, old secret and coming up with, uh, you know, and restoring those uh, trade routes that used to you know, go on in ancient times. And, there was this car rally from uh, Kolkata to Kunming. So for just for just to, for demonstration that this can be done. And if we could establish that link from Kolkata to Kunming, a highway and a railway, then it would be mutually beneficial for India, Bangladesh, Myanmar, and China. So these are some of the things that sometimes geopolitical uh, issues, you know, sometimes blockade the common interest of people. So I think it's in our interest. It's also in, in India's interest. I think if we can get better connectivity into the region, and because COVID nineteen has also shown us that you know a crisis like this, when there is a crisis like this, the whole world economy is now struggling. So if you can trade with your neighbors, if you can trade with your neighboring countries, and if you have land borders that you can take you know you know advantage of. That could be a you know big thing for the, all countries, I think. So, in the future, I think we need to have you know because South Asia is one of the least integrated regions in the world. Our railways, our highways, and all these things—they're not very well connected at all. And I think I read in a study that for Pakistan, it's cheaper to trade with Brazil than to trade with India. So these kinds of issues are there only because these are completely man-made. These are there because we have, you know, built obstacles for ourselves. So we have to get rid of these things and we have to have a more integrated and more connected South Asia because that will be better for everyone. And right now, if you look at RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership between ASEAN and the five big countries in the region. So after RCEP, South Asia is going to be completely left behind. We are going to be economically isolated from the rest of the world. So it's time for us to get together and settle our differences and come up with more connectivity and more trade in the region. I couldn't agree more with you. And I think like even within the China-Pakistan economic corridor example, it's it's north-south and that's good for Pakistani cities because you connect everything from Karachi to Peshawar and, and into Gilgit-Baltistan, which is great. But for the real potential to occur, you have to have east-west trade. And those were the historic markets. And I often tell people that, you know, you can take a, a map of the whole region and, and overlay it with population density and you will very quickly notice that across these countries, the real connectivity is east-west and north-south is within the countries, but the real connectivity comes east-west. And I think that the the legacy of colonial colonialism has held us back for far too long in terms of, you know, settling the differences, moving on and, 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 and trading more with each other. And I think that would be beneficial. Like one of the things that I found, you know, comical but tragic at the same time was that uh, you know, when, when demonetization happened in India, prices of, for example, tomatoes crashed in Indian Punjab. At that same time, there was a shortage of tomatoes in Pakistani Punjab, but you couldn't trade. And it was like, who lost at the end of the day was the Pakistani consumer and the Indian farmer, right? And if you had trade linkages, you would have a more vibrant market in that sense. Right now, Pakistan is supposed to have a 
shortage of cotton product uh, production. And it is also a big, a decently sized textile manufacturer, not as big as Bangladesh anymore, but it needs cotton. India is having a surplus cotton production, but you can't trade and bring the cotton across the border to make the textiles that you need to. It has to come via Dubai and you, people use all sorts of loopholes to do that. And I think we, we can and should move beyond it. Um, and it has been good to also, I think in the last few months, um, Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has had meetings with Pakistani diplomats and seems like there are ongoing discussions, uh, at least in the back door, back channel side to find a way to normalize relations. And I, for one, would be, you know, super happy if Pakistan were to publicly apologize to Bangladesh for 1971 uh, and move on and let us bury the past and let us start a new course forward. But I think we're not there yet, but one would hope that we get there in the next few years. Yeah, but what has really held back uh, regional cooperation in South Asia is not really the relationship between Bangladesh and Pakistan. It has always been the relationship between uh, India and Pakistan that really couldn't get anything done in SARC. And also right now in the Belt and Road Initiative, it's also the relationship between uh, India and China that is, uh, you know, help holding the BCIM corridor back. So in, I, in terms of regional cooperation, Bangladesh was always in favor of that. Bangladesh was a founding uh, member of SARC. And so we were always in, in favor of this. And we always realized that there is mutual gains from connectivity and trade and, uh, you know, people to people understanding. You mentioned a few things that I think Pakistan can learn from, uh, particularly population growth, educating women. Pakistan continues to lag there in terms of not only education of women writ large, but even youth literacy. It is far behind Bangladesh. It is actually behind countries like Rwanda now, which is a tragedy um, in terms of the fact that Rwanda suffered uh, an insane war, genocide in the 90s and has recovered from that while Pakistan has fallen behind. And you mentioned political stability as well and couldn't agree with you more. So before I let you go, my last question to you was, when you look at sort of these comparative statistics beyond the ones that you mentioned, are there other things where you would say to a Pakistani audience that, look, if your economy needs to grow and get out of this cycle of regularly going back to the IMF, here are some things that perhaps you ought to look at uh, more deeply as well. So one of the things that I found for Pakistan, I would say that, you know, if you look at the economy and if you look at Pakistan in general, you see that the military plays a big role in Pakistan. And military expenditure in Pakistan is almost uh, three times larger than Bangladesh in absolute terms. Also, in terms of uh, per capita, it's like twice in terms of GDP or in terms of as a share of government expenditure also it's several times higher than Bangladesh. So Pakistan has this huge budget for the army, for the military. And because this is because of its uh, overall policy of having a full spectrum deterrence for uh, you know India, that whatever India is doing vis-a-vis -vis India, we are going to have something in, you know, in as a response to Indian military. And this, I think this huge military, this huge uh, arsenal of weapons, like Pakistan, as you know, is one of the uh, nine nuclear nations in the world. And Pakistan, according to uh, Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, Pakistan had 160 nuclear warheads in 2019, I think. So that's a lot of nuclear weapons. And ultimately, if you think about it, these are weapons which are only there for intimidation. They're only there to just, you know, uh, intimidate your opponents. And they, whenever, they have never been used except for the occasions in Japan. They've almost never been used. All the nine nuclear nations are building these huge stockpiles for no reason. And obviously, I, I understand that the military is obviously a public good. Defense is a public good. Any country needs national defense, that's for sure. But nuclear weapons will never be used in defense. They will always be used to attack and destroy and totally uh, demolish some other country. So uh, I don't feel that nuclear weapons in Pakistan, in South Asia, or even throughout the world 
are justified. And for Pakistan, it's a huge burden because it's a developing country and it's a huge uh, financial burden also. Like around 10% of Pakistan's military budget is spent on nuclear weapons. So if you think about it, that would be enough. If you look, I also uh, looked up ILO's uh, social protection floors calculator and I did a small calculation and I found that with Pakistan's nuclear budget, you could give $1 for, to each orphan in Pakistan for one year. So that's a lot of money. And all these orphans, all these children, you could have some social protection program for them. You could give them education. There's a lot of opportunities are being lost and just to intimidate our opponents. So we have to ask ourselves that, do we live in a world of enemies or do we live in a world of friends? Because if because that is going to decide where we put our money. Yeah, no, I think uh, the Pakistani listener listening to your comments would very quickly respond that, look, we have a belligerent neighbor to the east. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then, you know, it, it, it is one of those recurring things that it's like a catch-22 that in India also has, has entered into as well now is that how much, uh, you know, in a low-growth economy, how much more money can you continue giving into national defense? And you feel that is important, but at the end of the day, folks have to come to the table and talk things out and make sure that they move beyond some of these issues at some point in time. Because I think particularly for a country like Pakistan, you have had two years of stagnant tax revenue growth. And even when the military has said, okay, we will take only a nominal increase in budget at the rate of inflation. So real terms, it's been flat the percentage of GDP continues to go up because it is a stagnant GDP environment, right? So I fully agree with you. At some point, you have to uh, talk things out and one would hope that we sort of go towards some sort of normalization in, in the near future. Um, but this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for taking out the Thank time. You, Learned a lot from your input and, you know, obviously super excited about where Bangladesh is headed and the fact that, you know, you have a country in South Asia that is doing so well. I think that is great for the South Asian region as a whole. And I think there's a lot that other countries can learn from Bangladesh. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Zara. It was great talking to you.